You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. In April of 2020, Anna lost her friend in an avalanche while the two were splitboarding Mount Taylor. In the wake of the accident, Anna utilized the AAC's Climbing Grief Fund to find accessible mental health care and connect with others who were grappling with similar trauma from accidents in the mountains. In this episode, we sat down with Anna to have a profoundly raw and elegant conversation about her experience of the accident, how the trauma of the avalanche changed her relationship to backcountry snowboarding and skiing culture, reflections on the toxic narrative of shame and blame that often still persist around outdoor tragedies and her personal journey as she learns and continues learning how to navigate her post-avalanche world. As Anna attests, the Climbing Grief Fund makes a huge difference in the lives of accident survivors, whether it's climbing or backcountry touring accidents. These grants are community funded, and it's often that element of community support that matters the most to those who are struggling with trauma and tragedy. If you need funding or resources from the CGF, or would like to donate and support this work to help fellow climbers receive the help they need after a tragic accident, visit AmericanAlpineClub.org slash grieffund. Hey, quick ask. If you're a fan of this podcast, we would love your help getting the word out there. Give us a rating on whichever platform you're listening on, or if you're inspired, leave a review on Apple Podcast. We'd love to know what your favorite episodes have been so far, so we can make even more that really resonate. Since 1981, outdoor research has created trusted apparel, accessories, and equipment for you to thrive outside. Their award-winning outdoor gear is meticulously researched and tested for outdoor enthusiasts and military users around the globe. Grounded in their values of curiosity, passion, innovation, collaboration, and community, OR strives to create space for all in the outdoors. OR celebrates wins outside at every level, together with their ambassadors, nonprofit partners, and employees. Check them out at OutdoorResearch.com. All right. Welcome, Anna, to the podcast. You're a Climbing Grief Grant recipient. And just to know for the audience, we'll refer to the Climbing Grief Grant as the CGF or the Climbing Grief Fund probably throughout because it's just less of a mouthful. But today we're going to be talking about why you ended up utilizing the CGF and how it's impacted you and kind of all of the intricacies of that. So I guess let's just start with what brought you to the CGF? I was involved in an avalanche April 2020, and Brendan's ski partner died in the avalanche. And following that event, I was seeking resources. I was very, I was pretty proactive about it. I really wanted help, and I was pointed towards the Climbing Grief Fund either by therapist or a friend, and I can't remember, but it was a huge relief when I found it. So you hadn't heard about it before that point? Correct. Yeah, I didn't know it existed until after my accident. Mm -hmm. 
And how did you primarily use it, like a, the grant that funds the therapy to make it more accessible? Or did you use other aspects of it? I I did use the grant, definitely, that financial support was very meaningful to me. I've definitely struggled financially since since the avalanche and at times have felt overwhelmed in trying to access the resources that I feel like would most help me. I've felt big financial barriers to those and, you know, in the big scope of therapy and all these different modalities and approaches to healing, the grant, it it can at times seem kind of like a drop in the bucket because it costs me so much money every year to get therapy. But I would say that just as much as the material financial support helped, also feeling like I was backed by the climbing community and that they were willing to show up in a material way for me was a huge emotional support as well. Yeah, the fact I, I think a lot of recipients I've spoken to before have really echoed that because it is entirely community funded. Like the community, the climbing community, like really sees the the need to support each other and their own through this, which is really incredible. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your friend? Yeah, my friend and ski partner that I was with that day, his name is Trace. He was 28 years old. He had fiery red hair and a face spattered with freckles. He had a really funny smirk and a great sense of humor and was a really outstanding person. And by that, I mean, like he stood out and that he was incredibly welcoming and exuded this energy of wanting to bring people into the passions that he had when he sensed that that passion was shared. So I actually first met Trace, well, I always think that I first met Trace working at this coffee shop where he was somewhat of a regular, but then I remember that I actually started running into Trace at the ski resort when I was living in Jackson Hole and I was working at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort as a ticket scanner. And I would see Trace come through early in the mornings almost every day. And he was working, it turns out he was working as a janitor, I think, or a custodian um, at the Bridger Center at the top of the gondola. And I just remember always being impressed by how friendly he was. And I could see like people's little pictures pop up on the RFID. So he just looked like a really happy, nice guy. And then fast forward like a year or so, and I was working at this coffee shop and I recognized him when he'd come in from working RFID. And he always had this forest service mug and I was really wanting to work for the forest service. I had started meeting people around Jackson who were really stoked on it. And the schedule seemed really awesome. The eight days on, six days off, et cetera, spending a lot of time in the wilderness. So I asked him about it and I told him I was interested in working for the forest service and he instantly lit up and was telling me lots of the like ups and downs of working for the forest service. He was just energized by sharing his insights with someone new to, yeah, to that world. So, and then he said that he would be stoked to 
helped me navigate the application process, which could be really confusing and offered to sit down with me sometime when it got closer to the time to apply and gave me his phone number. And we actually followed through with that. And several months later, I met up with him at a coffee shop and um, he helped me go through the application process and then later helped me get the job. So that's how I met Trace. Very awesome. And then soon after that, you guys started skiing together or snowboarding together? Yeah, we were both splitboarders, which is always a little bit extra exciting when splitboarders find each other because especially, I don't know, maybe as a woman, I do feel challenged by like sometimes being feeling like I'm slower in groups. And so then on top of that being a splitboarder where my transitions are just going to they're just going to take me a little bit longer. It's nice to be out with other split boarders in the group. So anyways, I was excited to find another split border <laughs> and he was stoked to take me out in the backcountry, kind of take me under his wing and start tackling some of the objectives that I'd been dreaming about ever like since before I even moved to Jackson. So yeah, we only ended up being able to get out a couple times before the accident happened, but it was pretty much, he helped me get hired and then we started skiing together. Do you feel comfortable telling us a little bit about what happened about the accident? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely hard to know exactly where to start and how much is really helpful to share, but it was April 1st. The avalanche conditions were rated moderate. There was some fresh snow and we were excited to get out. I don't remember like all the details of the forecasts leading up to that day, um, but I remember that the general impression amongst the people that I had been skiing with was that things were pretty stable, and the main problem in the forecast was wind slab. So, But I remember as I was talking to Trace, there was kind of this impression that most of our options were on the table to be considered. There wasn't really a lot that we felt was out of bounds that day. And so we decided to go up Taylor Mountain, something that I hadn't skied before and had been looking at for a long time. And we thought that perhaps um, certain parts of the South Face could be an option since the wind coming in from the south-southwest, we anticipated finding wind slab primarily on north and northeast-facing uh, aspects. So, yeah, we parked at the Coal Creek parking lot and went up from there, and it was an awesome tour, amazing weather. We were in high spirits and just felt in the flow of things. I was starting to feel really excited about uh, having my systems, getting my systems dialed in and getting into a rhythm and was feeling just super good that day. And it is interesting. I feel like a lot of people who have gone through these kinds of experiences will say that they like noticed interesting things leading up to the event on that day. And um, for me, it was, I had this thought as we were skinning up uh, about what I would do if 
I was alone looking for a friend who was buried. And I went through this step-by-step process in my head of what I would do. And I just find that very interesting that I was contemplating that on the way up that morning. But yeah, so we got to the top and ate a really wonderful lunch in some sun that poked through the clouds at the perfect time. And yeah, I had some really nice conversation and then tried to decide what we felt comfortable skiing. And we decided that uh, part of the South Face seemed like a good option. It it was to us a more conservative option than a couloir on a more East facing aspect that we were considering and kind of felt like a good middle ground. So I went first and took several turns down. We had agreed on a spot where I was going to wait for him, where I would be in sight. But when I reached that spot, I briefly assessed where I was at in the terrain and could see, identify that where I was, was in an avalanche path. So I continued down a little bit further and tried to get a little bit because the avalanche path created just like a little bit of a a gully or a terrain trap. So I tried to get up a little bit higher on like the side of that and felt good there and called out to Trace um, for him to come down. And he started coming down and I saw him poke out of the sparse little trees up there and he took a big turn over onto an exposed area of the South Face where from my memory and I only, I, I guess I'm not sure exactly how accurate this is, but it kind of seems like the South Face starts to kind of turn around, turn a little bit east. Um, this one really exposed part towards the top and as he did that, I heard the snow collapse and I was actually like taking a video of him at the time on my phone. And so it took me a second. It took me probably half a second or less actually to register it. But, you know, as soon as that sound happens, time goes into slow motion and takes a moment to realize what you've just heard. And then I look up from my phone and I see the snow sliding towards me and I see Trace on his heel side standing and I had to turn around and ride away. And I rode away until the snow stopped moving or maybe even a little longer than that. Because when I turned around, the snow had come to stop um, and I called out to him and I actually heard a voice in response. I was, so it could have been Trace or it could have been someone else, but that gave me some hope that maybe he was just on the other side of this little micro ridge that the avalanche path was kind of forming, that gully I was talking about before, and that maybe I just couldn't see him. But either way, I, you know, I called out again and I didn't hear anything. So I, knew what I had to do. I had to start looking for him. And I remember thinking, okay, I need to take a second to just 
collect myself before I start this because I wanted to give myself the best possible chance I had. It's like, this is, this is my moment. This is like the time that I have to do the best I've ever freaking done. And at the same time, I was definitely like just already feeling the effects of overwhelm and aloneness and chaos. And, uh, I, yeah, I got my beacon out and I had to take my split board off because I was like, well, the point last scene is way up above me. The last time I saw him, he's like at the top of the avalanche pretty much, which was, I don't know how, how many yards above me, at least like 50. And I, you know, I was trying to fall back on that, um, that system that's taught to us in our avalanche rescue courses. It tries to build that muscle memory so that you don't have to be thinking critically so that you can go into an automatic mode. And yet I, from the very first step of my search, I was totally thrown off by not having a point last scene that was feasible for me to get to. Mm -hmm. And so then what ended up happening is I was like, well, I don't want to have to post hole with my backpack on. So I drop my backpack and I start post holing. And then I realize, oh, well, my beacon and my shovel or not my beacon, my probe and my shovel are in my backpack. So then I had to post hole back to my backpack, put my backpack on and having that wrench thrown in my system so early on made me feel dumb, made me feel really stupid. And then... Yeah, I felt very overwhelmed trying trying to find him. And my beacon search was not successful for a myriad of reasons that I won't continue to go into. Search and Rescue came out as soon as I called them when I got to the parking lot. Had cell service again and called Search and Rescue. And they weren't able to find him that night. And I had to go home without without my friend and we had to break into his car and get my slippers out <laughs> of it. And all these weird little details that you remembered, like, because they're like the first tangible evidence that this is really happening. Um, and then I went, I came back to the parking lot the next day with search and rescue and, they found him like three or four hours later uh, near the toe of the primary path of the avalanche. Mm -hmm. And his beacon was not on. They found him with a dog from the JHMR ski patrol. Mm -hmm. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit what, what that experience was like for you? It was, I mean, it goes without saying it was the worst thing I've ever experienced. It feels, it makes me almost feel like small trying to describe it um, because the experience is so immense and beyond words that it can, even just like trying to put words to it can make me feel like I want to shut down or withdraw, withdraw. So I think that that in itself can kind of speak to how just terrible, I mean, it's beyond, um, it's a beyond, 
if you haven't experienced something similar to this life altering in such a devastating way, there's no way to even picture it. There's no way to wrap your head around it. And I know this because before this happened to me, I had, I just would have never been able to imagine what it was like. It was a different variety of devastation than I had even, I hadn't even felt like a smaller version of it. It was a completely new beast. It was like my entire worldview, my entire universe, my entire sense of life, what that meant, what it meant to be me, what it meant to be like a human on earth was blown apart. And in those first few days and maybe like first month after I, it was as though like my life had buried me in its rubble as it crumbled down. And then I was trying to like find my way to the surface. And as I did, I had, I had to like take in this new reality and it felt like this like new horrible realities. And at the same time, like there were elements of truth that I could already tell right away felt like they added dimension to my life as well. So even in the very first stages, there was like some beauty to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's dig dig into a little bit that a little bit more kind of this rubble experience, I think is very aligned with like the experience of trauma, but that can be really individualized. Can you tell us a little bit more about what trauma, like this trauma experience has been like for you in your body, like what it's felt like? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely been, you know, there's very psychological aspects to it. And there are also like physical aspects to it to, to tackle the physical aspects first. It's almost, it's kind of easier to describe those obviously, but I get like this closing in my throat, like this tightening in my throat and tightening in my chest. And I, that's what happens when I'm, I I think it's probably when my nervous system gets triggered and I go maybe kind of back into that flight, fight or flight. And yeah, those physical symptoms can be very debilitating. They usually come with um, some disassociation where I kind of feel like I'm floating through a fog, like I am not attached to what my body is doing. It's really hard to explain. And yeah, those, those aspects of my trauma have become less intense over time and less frequent for the most part, unless, um, I'm having a really bad episode, but I kind of feel like that's what a lot of the healing process looks like is that it doesn't go away, but it becomes less intense and the moments of intensity become less frequent, Mm -hmm. but I know to, I know to be prepared. I know that I'm not going to live the rest of my life without those moments of intensity and they definitely scare me but I I've put together a little like first aid kit for my heart for those days so that includes mm-hmm. like 
scented bath salts and um, a heated neck pillow, my favorite teas, uh, some really easy food that I also like. So maybe it's like a, a can of soup and like, like a nice can of soup or something. It's usually, it's something that's like a non-perishable so I can keep it in the cabinet, but that way, like I can feed myself on those days without having to cook. Yeah. Yeah. And then in terms of the psychological aspects of trauma that I've been dealing with, yeah, those, those are really, really challenging to try to describe, but, and so it feels like when, when I attempt to describe them, it's, it would, it feels somewhat impossible to give people an understanding who, who haven't experienced something like this, but I like to try to describe it for those people out there who have gone through something like this, because maybe it without me having to explain so much, they might already be able to kind of understand. And, and um, it's a powerful thing to share these sentiments and be like, wow, I, I have felt that way. And I, I didn't think that anybody else was feeling this. So anyways, yeah, I would say that psychologically, I go through most of my life uh, since the avalanche and like a new normal, a state of like, quote unquote, new normal, where a lot of my life just feels kind of muted from what it was before. I am a little bit more nonchalant about life. Mm. And I've been working on just practicing a lot of acceptance around this. And it doesn't mean that I don't enjoy life or enjoy this new normal but there's definitely a mourning for my past self and a deep, deep sense of loss around um, and missing of that person. And then that new normal is dotted with high moments where I can access that inspiration and yeah, that sense of fulfillment and excitement for possibility and the future. And I've noticed that there are certain places that I can return to like physical places. So for me, it's like the Loxa um, river in Idaho or Maui, Hawaii is another place for me or yeah, Moab, Utah. And I can find, I can kind of find myself. I can find mm. these like traces of my past self. And so that's been really special. Um, but knowing that even if I were to permanently relocate to like any of these places, that I there's there would still be a change like I, I wouldn't be able to live in that permanently mm. that state permanently again it's yeah. just not my reality anymore yeah and then uh, like I like I mentioned earlier so I have like the new normal with moments of of highs and then I also have the occasional stress outbreak and I've been able to kind of identify my triggers for those. And some of them are outside of my control, but I'm working to, and it's a long-term project. I'm working to build my life in a new way to that mitigates those triggers. So financial stability, predictability. I used to be very spontaneous and um, much, I had more capacity for maybe like impulsiveness or, or um, uncertainty, whether it was with like housing or jobs or income, et cetera. And that allowed me a flexibility in my life that I don't, I, I can't afford anymore. 
but I think that's also propelling me into a new chapter of my life that will be rewarding in new ways. And, you know, trauma is really complex and individual, but I think you're already really sharing some really important details that I think so many other people experience. So if you're comfortable sharing some of the ways like you kind of experienced grief and trauma after, I think some people would really identify with that. Yeah. Um, it's such a big topic to touch on. It's been such a crazy, chaotic, messy journey for me. Um, the thing that I've struggled with the most with the trauma has probably been the feelings of isolation that come with it. Having this experience that I feel like almost nobody can understand unless someone has been through something similar. And yeah, it's been very isolating. Um, and I have been so afraid of feeling alone and feeling so worried about feeling forgotten or rejected that I think in turn I've kind of ran away from places. So what I mean by that is I've moved around a lot since the avalanche happened. I left Jackson in the fall. I was so, I, so after the avalanche, I did end up working for the forest service that summer. And, um, I really enjoyed that. I felt like being in wild spaces was super therapeutic for me. Um, and gave me relief. I loved it. That was really special. I'm so thankful that that was the work that I got to do following that accident. However, when I when the season ended, I felt a sentiment that I think is shared a lot uh, across a lot of seasonal workers of like, you kind of sprint to the end of the season and then you find yourself like wondering like, okay, what's next? And feeling like you've invested so much in this work and this small group of people and then back home you feel like you've become a bit disconnected from the rest of your community being gone so much over the summer. And it was also in the middle of COVID. So when the season ended, I felt very disconnected from the rest of my community. And I felt like I didn't have a good support system set up there for me to go into the winter. And so I decided that I was going to leave and I didn't have a plan of where I was going to go. I went home to Madison, Wisconsin and spent some time with my dad and tried to decide my next steps. And since then I've tried one, one place after another and I can't escape the loneliness. I can't escape the feelings of disconnect and I don't enjoy being new to a place anymore because it's tiring to meet new people. And I, I was in the middle of trying to figure out who, who am I even anymore? I'm a totally different person now. And Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think there was something really challenging about 
not staying in the community where it happened, where people knew I didn't have to tell them and people knew who I was before the accident. Something about people knowing that I was a bit different felt supportive in a way. And so starting over in all these new places where people were like, oh, this is Anna and this is how, like, I don't know, just was like, this isn't how I've always been and I don't even know who I am now. So how do I get to know anybody? I don't know. Yeah. I would say like over and over again, I come back to longing for community and just wanting to connect with others who have gone through something like this. And that feels like, that's felt like the missing piece of my puzzle. I have an amazing therapist and so thankful to have her, but I feel like without that sense of community, the healing that I am able to experience is somewhat limited. Mm -hmm. However, um, recently I have found a, a peer support group and that's been huge. And yeah, I'm just so thankful for that. Is that local to you or is that more like uh, online, like across states type of support group? This one is local. It's in Bozeman. I'm in Missoula. Mm -hmm. um, so I drive three hours to Bozeman once a month for this two hour long meeting. And it's so worth that investment. I, it's usually the highlight of my month. And I'm so thankful for the friendships that I'm forming through that group. And yeah, we're just, I just feel like the people in that group are so dedicated to each other. There's a really fulfilling sense of purpose in that. Yeah, absolutely. You were talking a little bit about your relationship to yourself and like kind of grappling with who you were after the accident and who you are and how that relates to who you were before the accident. But I also want to ask you, you know, kind of embedded in that, a flavor of that is what your relationship with snowboarding was after and maybe how it's evolved in the couple of years since the accident. Yeah, it's been really complicated. Um, after the avalanche first happened in those that first month or so, I felt this deep sense of knowing that I wanted to stay connected to that passion. Um, and I feel like snowboarding is a way that I can access connection with Trace. Mm. But over time, I think, you know, with leaving Jackson, I didn't end up really snowboarding at all pretty much that first winter after and then the following winter I had landed in Missoula where I am now and I've been definitely going snowboarding but it's been different and it's complicated I don't feel the the sense of aspiring to something hmm. being a part of it anymore and I think that brought so much richness to the experience of snowboarding to have aspirations that I was invested in and excited about. I felt inspired. 
and now I feel in its place is apathy. And I definitely have still had some really fun days. But I think it also that going snowboarding is kind of like holding up a mirror in a way. It like holds up a mirror for me to be confronted by the fact that I'm not the same person that I was anymore because the experience is so different and it's so hard to put my finger on exactly what it is about it. So then it's hard to try to explain to the people that I'm closest to even. And yeah. And then, um, so that's like snowboarding in general. And then my relationship with backcountry skiing is definitely very complicated as well. I go through an ebb and flow of feeling empowered to continue doing it um, and feeling inspired to continue doing it. And with that, like I, I do it because I hope to be able to be in spaces where I feel close to trace and I can experience this like expansive connectedness with the part of nature and earth and maybe the universe, the part that we don't see. I feel connected to that in the mountains sometimes. And so when I go out into the backcountry these days, it feels like I am trying to keep my body and mind and skills sharp so that maybe I can tackle an objective that would allow me to experience that. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Okay. But there's other times and I'm in this spot right now where I just kind of want to leave it behind. So it fluctuates and I like have resentment towards it too. And I sometimes feel a resentment towards certain aspects of like the culture and the scene Mm -hmm. surrounding both resort and backcountry skiing. Tell us a little bit more about what you mean by resentment. Yeah, um, resentment that I am noticing towards the culture around skiing and backcountry skiing. Like I said, it's something that I'm just starting to really um, acknowledge. I it's been it's definitely been there, and this winter I've started to allow myself to really like see it and start grappling with it. So I feel like yeah, my thoughts on this topic aren't fully developed, but they're kind of in the early stages of understanding, but I think it's, I think my resentment is channeled towards the aspects of the ski culture that promote kind of an addictive attitude Mm -hmm. and maybe like a greedy approach to the mountains. There's an emphasis on more wanting more powder days, wanting the next gnarliest thing, looking at what others have done and wanting it for ourselves or seeing that, you know, our friend a few ski towns away got a chest deep day and we just had a knee high one and 
we want that instead, or, you know, we want the, the next best gear and we want more accomplishment. Yeah. I, I think that there's elements of greed in this and that, um, a lot of the media around skiing amplifies these attitudes. I mean, we live in a capitalist culture. I think that that also plays into it. And I think that the reason why I feel I feel resentment towards this is because the aspects of culture around skiing that do push people to want more, the aspects of the culture, like what we see in our media, that's like ski films, magazines, etc. Like they can kind of promote, you know, partying too. And these aspects aren't, you know, they don't feel supportive to someone in my position. And I think I felt kind of left behind by friends who continue to pursue these aspects of the culture. And so I think that that has grown a bit of a resentment in me. Yeah, I'm hearing you say that kind of like because that that element of the culture seems so prevalent and overwhelming that there's like not space for other elements that like or ways of skiing that you might be really interested in right now right exactly so yeah that's to say i think that you know huge awesome lines gnarly terrain and pushing the boundaries of the sport are super awesome things i and thank you for saying that because i don't want it to come across as though i I'm against that, but I would love for the focus of our community to expand Mm. and represent a more balanced and respectful approach to the mountains. Yeah, absolutely. While we're talking about kind of culture, um, I'm interested in whether you've experienced um, narratives of blame and shame around accidents, either personally or heard other people perhaps talk about accidents in that way. And why is it so problematic? Like, why do we need to get away from that? Yeah, I I have experienced um, some instances personally, like when I got back to the Coal Creek parking lot after the avalanche happened and search and rescue was called, there was someone in the parking lot that said, I can't believe someone would even think about skiing the south base of Taylor on a day like today. Mm-hmm. That was one of the first things I heard. I know other people who have overheard people talking about their accident, people that they don't know, people like on the bus or around town talking about their accident and in a way that's very disrespectful. Another idiot dead is a a quote that's been heard. Mm -hmm. So it does happen. And I think that those examples are very easy to identify as harmful and shaming, but that there are also ways of acting, thinking, and talking that are more subtly shaming as well. So instead of hearing those examples and thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't believe anyone would ever say that. And I would never say something like that. Like instead reflecting on instances where maybe we've all practiced like righteousness or perhaps some arrogance or been quick to think like, oh, well, 
why would they have done that? Or why wouldn't they do a beacon check and instead move into a place of identifying what makes you similar to these people who have been through accidents? A lot of, you know, a lot of people who are involved in avalanches are also out there trying to be safe and trying to apply their skills in a way that effectively mitigates risk. And it can be easy looking at accidents from the outside to see what makes you different from that, from the people involved or to think that you would make different decisions. But, you know, a lot of, it's a pretty popular saying these days that experts are the most likely people to be caught in avalanches. Yeah. An example that comes to mind is I I heard someone once say like that they they're an av- avalanche education um, instructor and they told me one time that they tell their students that they don't want to see their name in the newspaper at the end of their courses and I actually remember being told that as a student as well. And although that's meant with the best intentions, I think that it's laced with um, a mentality towards the mountains or like it's a part of this narrative that says that if we are smart, we won't be in an avalanche. And I, what does that imply then? about the people who are in avalanches. And those small things, those small statements are prevalent throughout avalanche education. And I think that that does feed into um, um, a greater attitude or like a shared attitude in our community that might be somewhat self subconscious that is judgmental. If that's not real and our community isn't judgmental, I think that it's still received that way by avalanche survivors. And, you know, I don't think that it is just imagined because I've heard, I've heard several people now, since being in my avalanche, I've been talking to lots of people. I've been reading lots of articles. There's a lot of shame around being in an avalanche. People hide it. People don't even tell other people if they're in an avalanche and there's no injuries, no fatalities. Sometimes they'll cover it up because of all of these implications in the way that we talk, in the way that we teach, in the way that we act, that if you've been in an avalanche, you're reckless, you're less than you're, you were not being smart. I want to just push back against that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really profound point is that um, the narratives around blame and shame are like, first of all, not helpful (laughs) in that they're like actively can be obscuring when avalanches do happen. And that they also just don't reckon with like the kind of what you're calling the respect for the mountains of just like the inherent in it, like, variability of these spaces that we just have no control over like as much as like we want to believe that it's all about a human's decision making it's not and like there's just the mountains do things sometimes you know no matter how good how many good decisions we make yeah Mm -hmm. right right 
Yeah. And they're just incredibly powerful, complex, infinitely complex beings. Um, so kind of coming back to the CGF, how did the CGF impact you? Like, how is mm. it? I think you it's shaping your future career in some sense, right? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, definitely. So the CGF has a section of their website that is a directory of therapists who have experience with outdoor recreation or identify as a part of the outdoor community and then oftentimes also have specific training with grief and trauma or a a specific focus on those areas. And myself being able to connect with a therapist who is also a backcountry skier, who also was involved in a fatal avalanche, that has been so huge for me. And also seeing the directory as a resource where people can hopefully also like access these peer support groups that have been so meaningful to me. Yeah, that's been really inspiring and makes me want to grow more of that. Makes me want to bring more groups into existence um, or to support those efforts. And in that way, I think that the CGF has played a big role in me deciding to uh, pursue a career as as a therapist as well. I, I want to be able to bring that point of connection to others. I want to be able to offer that to others because for me, it's been so important to have a baseline shared experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I guess as we're finishing up our conversation, uh, what message would you wish that you could share with like all climbers or all backcountry recreators about uh, about either grief or mental health or risk? Mm. Well, I feel like we've touched on a couple of of the messages that I'm most passionate about this moment in time. But I guess I have maybe a couple last points that I'd like to touch on and One of those is um, that I hope that survivors, trauma survivors in in mountain accidents um, can begin to have a bit more of a place at the table and conversations around avalanche safety and accident reporting. And, you know, I guess that being said, I also recognize that so many people are not in a place where they are open or feel safe sharing their perspectives or their stories in these conversations. But I do kind of feel like there's this assumption in a lot of times that that is the case, that people like it's going to be too triggering or challenging to share. And so they're not asked. Like I haven't been asked. Um, I have read accident reports on my avalanche that where I feel misrepresented and I feel like the event is inaccurately portrayed. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why I was never asked if I wanted to contribute to that in some way. 
Um, and maybe it doesn't hurt so much just to ask, to give that opportunity. And I just wonder, like, is it, yeah, is it that people are trying to protect us or is it that people don't realize that our perspective is an important part in an accident report? You know, maybe accident reports are seen as trying to just take all of the emotion out of it. Um, Mm. I don't know, but either way, like you you at least want the the facts to be correct. (laughs) And if there was only one person present who's still alive, then how are you going to think that you're going to get all the facts right if you don't talk to that person? Yeah. So, so anyways, I guess um, I'd like to encourage our community to invite survivors to have a place at the table in these conversations and the knowing and like giving space for survivors to not accept the invitation if they're not ready or if they don't want to, they don't have to, it's not their responsibility or their obligation, but yeah, I've definitely felt frustrated at times that I haven't at least been asked. And then I guess I just want to say that, like I've mentioned about my own process, I, I feel like grief and trauma are most often, it's not like always graceful that grief has introduced me to a part of myself that is more grounded and wise um, and not concerned with the petty elements of life. This part of myself that I had never seen before, maybe like the strongest and best part of myself. And also this isn't, that's not the only version of myself that I get to be. Um, It's, you know, I, was kind of hoping initially when I saw this person show up after the avalanche happened and I thought maybe that that was just who I was now. And I got, I was going to get to be this like wiser, better, more like self honoring human for the rest of my life. But it hasn't been like that. I've also had to face like, feeling like the ugliest part of myself as well and feeling sometimes like I'm not stronger, I'm weaker than I've ever been. I'm more fragile and I'm less able, I've proven like less able to make the right decisions for myself and to advocate for myself. And so I just want to acknowledge or voice that it's just a really messy just a really messy process and that if other people are feeling like they're going through chaos in their grief or their trauma, they're not alone and it's going to look different for each of us, but there's going to be points or intersections of connection and similarity as well. And finding a peer support group has been really affirming and really helpful to 
have this evidence that I'm not the only person grappling with these things. So I definitely encourage people to look into that. And I encourage um, licensed therapists and social workers out there to consider uh, creating one of these groups. The the group that I go to right now is just called Loss in the Outdoors. Um, It's not super specific to avalanche accidents or even mountain accidents. And at first I was a little bit apprehensive before I showed up to my first meeting. I was apprehensive about that like kind of relaxed parameter Mm -hmm. around the group and who would attend. But I found it to be really awesome to have all these different kinds of experiences represented and to see all of us showing up to support each other in huge ways and not needing to share like very specific aspects of our experiences. And I, I guess I just wanted, I really wanted to mention that because if there is a therapist out there who's been thinking about starting one of these groups, but is uncertain about where to like draw those boundaries or like if there's going to be enough need or something like that, it doesn't like hurt to try. And um, I've found it to be really inspiring that it doesn't seem to need to be just avalanche survivors for the group to feel really supportive and for there to be enough to, uh, shared experience among people in the group. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Do you have any memories or moments of total joy in splitboarding that you can leave us with? Oh, uh, well, this is an interesting question to me because while I love it, experiencing immersive joy in nature I see this joy as a secondary emotion, meaning that I see it as rooted in a sense of connectedness with nature. And this distinction feels important to me because while the joy in splitboarding can be evasive for me, especially after my accident, that sense of connectedness has remained. And I find a lot of strength and freedom in the connectedness that I experience when I'm in the mountains. So I guess instead of sharing a moment of total joy, I I think I could share instead a moment of this connectedness. And so the one that comes to mind is this time from skiing Wimpy's Knob in uh, Grand Teton National Park after the avalanche. It was about a year after the avalanche. I was visiting Jackson and my friend took me up to Wimpy's and we skied a one of the coolars off the north side. And the snow was, you know, thought to be very stable and the avalanche rating had been low for a while at that point, but I was still very scared before dropping in 
to the couloir and my friend went first, uh, which I was so worried about because I know now that once you make a decision, like you can't take it back if it ends up being the wrong one. So um, he took some awesome turns and had a great time and got to the bottom safe. And I came down after him. And, you know, for me these days, like, even though it was like spring conditions and thought to be so stable, like I'm still in a pretty triggered state um, when I am skiing that kind of terrain in the backcountry. And so I would say that as I was on my way down, I wasn't consumed in a flow state or total joy per se, but I did still feel uplifted. I felt a sense of overcoming. I felt a sense of breaking free for a moment, even if that moment was somewhat disheveled and laced in fear. And when I approached my friend at the bottom, I felt this amazing sense of expansiveness um, and that connection that I was talking about before. I just felt Trace's spirit so present, like I could reach out and touch him. I just felt him like radiating in the entire landscape. And so that's what I would say draws me back to snowboarding, knowing that he's out there. Well, thank you so much, Anna, for sharing everything that you shared today. I am going to share a bunch of resources for the CGF so that if people feel connected to your story, they can support the CGF and help uh, finance it. Because like it is, like I said earlier, it's an entirely community funded um, project. And it's really awesome that climbers and skiers and backcountry explorers can support each other through this like kind of inherent part of our sports. And then also you can find out more about all those directory resources. And there's a lot of really impactful storytelling also on the website. So all of our listeners should definitely check those things out. Thanks again, Anna. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here. This podcast is presented by Outdoor Research. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney and Shane Johnson. We'd love your feedback. Leave us a review or a comment letting us know which episodes have been your favorite. 